Good morning. Once again, I invite you to take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to turn to chapter 9. Lord willing, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14, and the, the title of our study this morning is Kingdom Priorities. Kingdom Priorities. I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, which says this. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I do to others, I am not an apostle. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard? And does not eat the fruit of it, or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Does or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake. It was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you right now, and we ask, Lord, that you would direct our time of study. Help us, Father, to... Really focus in on your truth, that this might be a time where our own hearts are challenged and where we might be more determined to understand who you are and how we might glorify you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians, and if you have been with us for any time, you are probably familiar with the fact that this was a church that had major problems. There was division in the church. It was a a difficult uh, church because of the factious attitudes and the bickering, and some were saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas or Peter. And so it seemed like uh, some, were even, some were even saying, I am of Christ, probably to the extent of, uh, I only listen to Christ, I don't listen to anybody else. And Paul was being attacked here. And a lot of what's going on in 1 Corinthians is Paul is not only responding to some of their issues, but he is trying to build a unity and establish his authority uh, as an apostle, but building a unity that will be sweet in the body of Christ. 
Uh, I remember that um, one time when I was on the mission field, uh, we were we were in. Uh, I was teaching in a Bible college, and uh, we were getting ready to start a Masters of Divinity program. And I had been asked um, to see if I could partner with that Bible college uh, and start an MDiv program. It would have been the first MDiv in the country, and uh, something that could give pastors the same kind of tools we can offer here with the languages and so forth and all the resources to be able to study, prepare sermons at that level. We really believed that um, unless we train nationals to the same level that the missionaries are trained, the nationals will always be dependent upon the missionaries. And so we saw this as kind of a final stage of an important stage of mission work. And uh, I was teaching at the bachelor's level at that time with a, with a faculty. There were about 400 students on the campus, and there were a, about 15 or 16 uh, missionary families that were involved in the work, a lot of American families living on the campus. And I had a conflict with one of the other missionaries, uh, and it was a doctrinal conflict. It was over the issue of covenant theology versus dispensational theology. To put it simply, I believed that there is a future for Israel, for ethnic Israel, that God has a plan for Israel in the future. And this other professor did not believe that. He believed that many of the promises that were for Israel in the Old Testament, which had not yet been fulfilled, that those are applied to the church. And, uh, and so we had several discussions about this. And at the bachelor's level, it wasn't really an issue because typically at that level of theological training, you typically as a professor teach several different views. And you can, espouse, you can tell them your view, but you're giving them a broader spectrum. At the master's degree level, you're going in a little bit more uh, deeply. And if to have a faculty that has a wide array of views it can cause division in that seminary. And so as I was putting together the curriculum, uh, I was looking for certain teachers to teach at that level. And this guy was upset about that. And, and, and it, it, you know, when you're all living in a mission station and you're having dinner you know, on Friday nights, potluck, and you're, you're working together and your kids are going to school together, sometimes these things can, can carry over. And I realized that at one time when one of his kids said to one of my kids at school, my daddy doesn't like your daddy. And so I don't know if that's true, but the kids were picking up on things. And... Um, and uh, this missionary ended up leaving a few years after that. And I, I can't say that our, I was that disappointed. Uh, we had not really gotten along, he and I, for whatever reason. And that was sad. It was sad on my part. It was sad on his part. I fully admit that it was sad on my part. Um, as the Lord would have it, he moved to a different country, started ministering in another city. And um, God took me there. I was doing some training in that city. And so I went to go and, and do some personal studies, and I, was, and I happened to run into him on the street. And we started talking, and he said, hey, can we uh, meet together for lunch? And I said, I would love that. And so we meet together, and he says, I need to ask your forgiveness. He said, I got caught up in the whole missionary thing, the whole campus life thing, and my thinking of what we were all about is different than what our mission really was. And he said, you and I are in so much agreement on so many things that we should have been the best of friends. But instead, he said, I was actually trying to work against that school that you were starting. And indeed, the school failed. And I don't think that he's the, the reason for it. The reason it failed is because the, it was the Lord's will. And a couple years later, we were able to start it somewhere else, uh, and independent of that school. And, and, and that, that's, uh, we were grateful that we could get it started. Um, but... 
this missionary just asked for my forgiveness, and I was so ready to give it. And it was, it was really kind of a sweet reunion. And when I came home, my wife was overjoyed to hear about it as well. And they had a need because they had left a bunch of their stuff in storage where we were at. And they needed to figure out how to get up there and sort through it. And uh, I said, why don't you come up and stay in our house? We're going to be going away for a couple months. You can just stay in our house. I'll move all of your stuff out of storage and put it into our garage. And you guys can take a couple weeks and, and go through it. And he said, that would be great. And he, uh, so I went to where his stuff was stored, and I moved it all in my garage. And then um, a month or so later, he comes up. We were gone. And people from the campus who were aware, they're like, did the beta box know that you're staying in their house? You know? So uh, it was a really sweet thing. And I, I could say genuinely that we have a strong affection for that family now, stronger than it's ever been. And I'm grateful for that. It's really only the Lord that can work in my heart, that can work in his heart and bring that about. And, and so I think about that because we have conflicts with other people. And especially within the church, a lot of what we're dealing with here is kingdom is a kingdom priority. Uh, it's one thing to get caught up in what you're doing. It's another thing to say, Lord, I want... It's not about me. It's not about my agenda. And even you can have, I mean, I, uh, you know, the right doctrine but the wrong attitude. And I think that I'm guilty of that in that relationship with that, with that missionary. Um, but God, through time, can take things and help us see the right priorities for the kingdom. And so I really, I really want to um, uh, uh, think about that in the context of what was going on in Paul's life, because uh, it, was, it was difficult for him being so far away and now writing to the church in Corinth. And you to come to this um, section here, he's just talked about the importance of giving up certain freedoms to help other believers, not to violate their conscience. We talked about the conscience in... Uh, chapter 8 last time, we talked about avoiding causing others to stumble. If you look at the very last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And so um, we see that, that Paul has this, this uh, real attitude of I'm willing to sacrifice my own desires for the kingdom, for harmony, for building others up. And in chapters 9 through 14, what's interesting is like this is a strong argument. He just talks about giving up his rights, and the first 14 verses, he asks, depending on the version of the translation you're looking at, 16 or 17 questions, and they're all rhetorical questions, and they're all about his rights. And we read these earlier. He says, you know, am I not an apostle? Uh, Verse 2 He's, uh, he says, uh, uh, I, uh, I, am not a, I am for you, or I am to you. Um, verse 4, do we not have this right? Verse 5, do we not have this right? Um, it's a little bit sarcastic in verse 6. Or do Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? And so he, he goes into this, this really um, vigorous argument about his rights. And I guess opening up a question is, why do you think that Paul makes such a strong argument that he has the right for apostolic authority and the right for financial support? Why does he, why does he make this argument so strong? 
Any thoughts? Yes. I think you. I think you are on the right track there for sure. I think that uh, uh, a lot of times when I ask questions, open-ended questions, looking at the context really helps. And so the fact that you went to the very next verse is great. And if you look at these, like verse eighteen, he says, um, "What then is my reward that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel?" But what's what struck me. Um, just at odd is that he spends 14 verses arguing for his rights. And then he spends a few verses saying, and I'm not going to use them. And I think there's more going on here than just Paul making a general argument for rights. I think that he was being attacked. And I think that there were issues that he was aware of that were not aware of the specifics. I think he's in one of those situations where he feels like, He's being attacked, and I think that two of the issues that were going on based off of what he says in this text is, one, I think there were people out there saying, well, you don't listen to Paul, do you? I mean, he's not even really an apostle. He may call himself an apostle, but he's not really an apostle. We know who the 12 are. And I think another issue is they were saying, he's not even like on pastoral staff. He's not even supported by the church. He's just kind of a nomad that that travels around. He's really just a tent maker with a bunch of ideas. So I think they were attacking uh, the fact that he did not receive a salary, and yet uh, he was ministering among them as a volunteer. He's just a volunteer. He doesn't really have any authority over us. And I think it goes a little bit further, too. I think that they were, if you, if you, and we'll get to this in the coming weeks, but verses 19 through 22, I think that um, they were accusing him of being in two minds about what he ate and with whom he ate. You know, sometimes he's eating with the Gentiles, and other times he's eating with the Jews, and he's giving things up for the Jews but not for the Gentiles. I think they were calling him double-minded, and we'll see that when we get there. But these are some of the attacks that we, by, by the way, it's it's. It seems to me, and and I could be wrong on this, but as I'm looking at the flow of the passage, and some have suggested that this is actually from another letter and it just got thrown in here, I don't believe that's the case. I really think there's a continuity here, but I think he is answering some of their issues in chapter 8. Chapter 7, we know it starts out in verse 1 now about the things which you wrote, and chapter 8, I think he carries on with that, and I think there's still some issues that he's trying to resolve, personal issues that help us to understand hey, he's trying to bring peace here and be kingdom-minded in a very difficult circumstance. And so as we look at verses 1 through 14 of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, we're going to see three arguments that should help us understand more about kingdom priorities. Three arguments. I'll tell you what they are. Uh, Verses 1 and 2, his first argument is that he has apostolic authority. The second argument is that he had ministry rights. And the third argument is his rights can be supported. And so we'll look, first of all, at verses 1 and 2 
Paul had apostolic authority. Um, Take a look at what he writes in verse 1. Am I not free? Um, I think he's just establishing his freedom there. Notice he, he's speaking in the first person, which is, which is interesting because um, he starts it back in verse 13 of chapter 8. But in this passage, I mean, you talk about personal pronouns. I mean, 20 times he's referring to I, me, we. Um, He's speaking the first person. So this is very personal to him. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? I think he's getting at uh, those who were saying that he has no authority. He's not an apostle. Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? One of the qualifications to be an apostle, we know from Acts chapter 1, when they were choosing uh, someone to take uh, the, the place of Judas, was that you had to have seen Jesus Christ, have been called by him and seen the resurrected Christ. And so he's saying, he's basically referring back to his call from the Lord. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? The Spirit would have to confirm an apostle, and in his case, he saw the confirmation of that as people coming to faith in Christ. And he's saying, are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, I could see how others might not call me an apostle, but you should because you've heard the gospel from me and you've, you've come to faith in Christ. If he says verse 2, the middle of verse 2, I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are the, 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 the thing that kind of stamps it, that says, yeah, this is definitely a work of the Lord. You know this is of the Lord. And he's appealing to them for that work of the Spirit. So Paul begins with this uh, response basically arguing, I am an apostle. This is a strong argument for his authority. And I think that, you know, sometimes uh, we, I remember that I was uh, talking to a Muslim person one time. I had two men who were training to be imams. I was working at that same Bible college and they wanted to meet with me to talk about the deity of Christ because they do not believe that Jesus is God. And so they wanted to know where, but they say they do believe in the Bible. So they wanted to know where in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God? And so I walked them over a series of weeks. We used to meet on Thursday nights, and, and, and they would come to my office, and, and, and Anita would say, are you sure that this is safe? I mean, you know, anyways, but it was, uh, uh, if we're going to go, that's a great way to go. Um, so these guys are coming, and we're talking about this, and I'm taking through passage after passage. We're going through John's gospel and the whole story of Thomas you know, my Lord and my God, and, and uh, John eight fifty eight, where um, Jesus declares to be, I am. And then I took them through, through the Pauline epistles, and they got tired of that quickly. And they kept on saying, no, 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 we don't want to see uh, anything else but the words of Jesus. And uh, they had like a red letter fever. They wanted a red letter edition. And they, they you know, the, the red letter edition sometimes can do us a disservice because Paul was an apostle. He was called by Christ to minister his truth to the church. Paul spoke, and when Paul wrote, it has the same authority as when Jesus spoke because it's all from God. And so we have this authoritative teaching. The whole Bible is God's word. So it's important that we understand apostolic authority. The second argument that Paul made was from verses 3 through 6. And that is, Paul's rights are defended here. Paul had ministry rights. Paul had ministry rights. 
and there are three rights that are listed here. They look like they're not related, but I think they are all related. The first right that he mentions is in verses 3 and 4, and that's to individual support. So he says, uh, my defense to those who examine me is this. And it's interesting, in the New American Standard, it looks like that that goes with what comes after it. I think it probably does, but I'm not 100% sure. It may, grammatically, it may apply to what he's just said. So he may be defending here his apostolic authority, or he may be defending his rights or a defense of his rights tied into his apostolic authority. Uh, at any rate, it doesn't change anything about the, 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 the text. It could apply to both. Uh, he's defending himself. Um, and he says in verse 4, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Now, he's not making an argument here saying that we should never eat or drink anything. He's basically making an argument that do we not have a right for individual support? We are ministering the gospel. Shouldn't we be able to eat and drink? Are you saying that I, I don't have a right to be paid for what I'm doing, I'm traveling and ministering, and that you should be taking care of me? Do we not have that right? That's his question. Uh, he was saying that he has a right to individual support. Not only that, he goes a step further with a second right that he says in verse 5, do we not have a right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas? And so he's saying, um, uh, he's not saying here, don't we have the right to be married? He is saying, don't we have the right to be married? And I think there's something to be said for that, but he's really saying it within the context of, hey, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm working for the Lord, I'm ministering on the Lord's behalf and the church is to take care of me, shouldn't they also take care of my wife, my family, even though he didn't have a wife? We know that already, right? So, but I think he's just saying that there are others who are being supported and taken care of. And he mentions Cephas, that is Peter, uh, specifically. And I think he does because Peter had ministered there. And I think Peter had likely received support from them there. And um, and, and Peter was married, and we know that, uh, that he was married. So uh, he's, he's saying, and other apostles were married, and the brothers of the Lord were married, the half-brothers of the Lord. And so, so he, you know, not only is this a, a refute against Roman Catholicism, which somehow thinks that somehow you can be uh, more spiritual if you are unmarried, uh, but it's basically saying that uh, he, he has a right to be married. It's, it's clear, and it's ironic that the Roman Catholic Church would say that, that Peter would be their first pope, and yet he's declaring his right to be married. I mean, if I were a priest, I'd go right here. This would be like, this would be like my dissertation, and then I'd get thrown out, and then I'd come here. So, um, but uh, I, I think that this relates to the support, and I think he's talking about individual support, family support, I also think it's a good principle here just to think about the fact that you have ministers who are traveling around and uh, they, they need to be taken care of, their families need to be taken care of, and there's something to be said for taking care of a guy when you bring him someplace to make a possibility for his wife to join as well. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, he, I think the context here is about financial support and it's going to carry on for a number of verses. Verse 6, he says, Or do Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? And I think what he's arguing there, again, is financial support. Do we not, are we the only two out there working for Jesus Christ that don't have a right to be supported by the church? 
And he's asking these rhetorical questions, and he expects the answer to be, no, you do have a right. You do have a right. Yeah, those are rights, definitely. And so the way he's asking them just assumes that they would say, yes, you have that right. You have that right. You have that right. We see Paul's apostolic authority in verses 1 and 2. We see his ministry rights in verses 3 through 6. Again, I think that kind of is there to refute those who say he's not really an apostle. He's not even a paid minister. He's saying, I have these rights. I am an apostle. You know that. And I have a right to this. And this is where it really gets interesting, is he starts to give these illustrations so his, his, to support his claim that he has a right to be supported. And in verses 7 through 14, we find a number, I believe there are seven, I've, you can, I've grouped seven illustrations demonstrating that he had a right to be supported. And so beginning in verse 7, we'll look at the first illustration, and this is under the heading of Paul's rights could be supported. That's the third argument. My rights can be supported. Verse 7, we have the illustration of a soldier in the first part of verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? And so he's, he's going here and he's saying, you know, this is, I'm a soldier. Uh, can, you, can you imagine being a soldier and saying, okay, I need more bullets. Let me go quick, uh, go uh, open up a taco stand, sell some tacos, get some more bullets, come back to war. I mean, soldiers have, are busy. They need to be focused. And so there's no such thing as a soldier that signs up to serve in an army, yet he's supporting himself. And so that's an illustration that he uses. Or, and he says, or who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it. So the second illustration he uses is a vine dresser, a vine dresser. Um, and uh, he's saying, um, you know, who is out there planting a vineyard and watching it grow and harvesting the grapes and saying, yeah, I wish I could have some of these, uh, but, you know, I'm just the one who planted them. I'm just the one who works this land, who owns this land. Do you think maybe I could have one, or should I, are these for someone else? So the illustration is, is quite clear. And then he says the issue, the illustration of a shepherd, also in verse 7, or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock. Um, so uh, again, it was common for shepherds to be out there, and they're taking care of sheep, and they're milking the sheep, and they're, 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 you know, the, the, they're taking care of the flock. They should benefit from it, and that's a clear picture. The next illustration is that of a farm, verses 8 through 11. And the farm, or this agricultural work, has uh, <laughs> a number of different characters that all illustrate the same thing. On the farm, we have an ox, we have a plowman, we have a thresher, and we have a sower. So, He says in verse 8, on the illustration of the farm, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. This is an illustration from, it's an Old Testament passage. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, and the, the principle was, in ancient times, um, you would have, you farmer would bring in a crop of something that needed to be processed. It could be wheat, it could be 
corn. It could be something that needs to somehow uh, come away from its husk or its shell. And so um, the farmer would take them and he would put them on the threshing floor. The threshing floor was a hard circular floor, sometimes paved with stone, and it would have a pole in the middle. And sometimes he would roll uh, a heavy, uh, like, round rock over it, or sometimes he would have um, a uh, take animals like oxen, sometimes even horses, and have them just trample it. And they would go around and just crush everything up. And then um, sometimes they would, they would even drag a heavy stone over it, depending on how big it was. They would take all of that, and then they would throw it up into the air, and the heavier kernels that were valuable would sink to the ground, and the wind would take the chaff and blow it away. And that was the process to help get their grain. And so his, he's saying, but, but, but even in the Old Testament, they were saying that the ox was worthy of, uh, you know, shouldn't be muzzled. It was too cruel to say, you've got to do all this work and you don't get to eat any of it. And so Paul is using the illustration of an ox on the farm, saying even the ox gets to eat. And he says this statement uh, in the middle of verse 9, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Is there anybody here from PETA? Um, What do you think he means, God is not concerned about oxen? I mean, we know that God cares about even sparrows, right? So, but his point here is that oxen were made to benefit people. And yet God cares about oxen enough to say that they should benefit from it. How much more should people benefit? That's the emphasis here. Um, And then we have the plowman in verse 10. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake. That's the part where he's saying, hey, this is why the provision was given. It's to benefit us. We have the ox. The oxen gets to benefit from it, but ultimately we're the ones who benefit the most. And then, because you have an ox, which means you don't have to push a heavy stone around the threshing floor. The ox helps you. Um, And then it says, in verse 10 again, it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope. Again, this is still the same farm imagery, and he's, he's now picturing somebody out there with a hoe or some kind of crude instrument, and he's making furrows in the ground, and he's plowing it, and it's hard work. And he's going to plant seed. Why? Just for fun? So that he will never benefit from it? No. The expectation is the plowman is going to benefit and get to reap some of the harvest and enjoy some of the food that is being planted. And then he says, and the thresher, to thresh in hope of sharing the crop. So this is the person also who's, who's crushing the wheat, who's running the ox, who's throwing the chaff and, and the, the seed up in the air. So this is, this is what's going on here with the thresher. So in the farm illustration, he has the ox, he has the plowman, he has the thresher, and now he says a sower. But again, he changes the tense here. He's been speaking in the third person, the thresher, if he, or the plowman, if he, but now he changes, if we sowed spiritual things. And now he's got the picture of a sower sowing seed. Who taught about a sower sowing seed? The Lord. But in that case, it was the preaching of his word. And so he's grabbing on the Lord's illustration, he's integrating into this, and he's saying, spiritually, we preach the word to you, we're sowing seed, and now he's carrying on with his whole illustration of a farm. If we sowed spiritual things in you, 
Is it too much if we reap material things from you? This idea seems fairly common here in the States. Most churches are, are really, um, uh, they have an idea that we need to take care of our pastor. But there are many countries around the world where this is a foreign idea, where the idea that somebody's going to take care of me spiritually and we're going to make sure there's food on his table and take care of his physical needs, this is almost a foreign concept. And even the United States had to grow out of a sort of an immature phase of this. You ever heard of circuit riders? Circuit riders were when there were too few pe- preachers to go around and congregations were small and, 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 and spread out, they would be on a horse and they would run a circuit. And they would preach at one church one Sunday and they'd go to the next and they'd go to the next and they'd go to the next. Uh, and in, in, in various countries around the world, you still have that pattern. You have a poor guy in a village. He plants a church in his village. There's eight people. They can't support him. And so he goes to another village, and he plants another church. And he gets somebody who's a lay elder, and he's going to say, you're going you're gonna to teach here. And he, he establishes him quickly, and you're going to teach three Sundays, and I'm going to plant four churches, and I'll be back around on the fourth Sunday every month, and I'll collect an offering, and, uh, and, 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 and it's, it's tough going. It's tough going. I think some of it has to do with missionaries as well. I think missionaries come to impoverished countries and they start meeting physical needs because they're drawn to that, because we're people, because we're Christians, because we love Christ, and we want to help people with their physical needs. It was D.L. Moody who said, if you have the Bible in one hand and bread in the other and you're preaching to hungry people, put the bread behind your back and, and, and preach the word of God so that they might not be drawn to the wrong thing. That's nice to say if you're D.L. Moody, but it's not practical if, you're, if people you're preaching to are impoverished and who have, are malnourished and who are struggling. And what happens oftentimes is the missionaries become such a financial benefit to the people. Their health gets better, their lives get longer, and then they end up um, uh, being in a position where um, the missionaries start to train up pastors and the pastors are taking over, and the missionaries help support the pastors uh, so that they can focus on their studying. And then eventually, the people see the church as a place that will help them financially, not only spiritually. And the idea that this guy is somebody that we are going to support uh, is, is foreign, um, I was talking to Bill Barrick one time. Bill Barrick was a missionary in Bangladesh, and uh, he had a, a young man that he was training for pastoral ministry, and he told me that the young man uh, was going to go back to his home village and start a church and pastor. And Bill offered him financial support. I can raise support for you. Uh, do you would you like that if we can do that? And the man said, no. If they knew that I was receiving support from outside, they would never support me. So I'm going to throw myself onto them and love them and preach to them and they will see my needs and then they will start supporting me. And we need people like that. We need to train up people with that attitude. And that's hard. And that's hard. C.T. Studd was a missionary who, if you've read his biography, he, he uh, had... Um, was born in a very wealthy family in England. And he ended up uh, wanting to go to the mission field, and he gave away all his money before 
uh, before he left, except for 150,000 pounds, which, I mean, that's not nothing today, right? It wasn't nothing back then. It was, it was worth probably, I don't know, you know, half a million dollars now. And he saved that for his wife to take care of her if anything ever happened to him. And she found out about it. And she said, are you not trusting the Lord? And they wrote a check and gave that money away as well. And they went to the mission field with nothing. Now, again, that's his story. I'm not prescribing that. But I'm, 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 I'm talking about dependence. And I'm talking about having the right attitude and being kingdom-minded. And as we look at Paul's argument, verse 11, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So that's the principle of the farm. Any, any questions about that? I want to move on, but I thought maybe we'd, there'd be some questions. Clear as mud? Yes. You're talking about lay ministers? Yeah. I, I think that, yeah. I think that, especially if you're involved in teaching, I think the church has an obligation uh, to help you focus on that. And I think that, that you can waive that right. The church that I visited last week in College Station, really cool story. Um, uh, guy graduated from master's, um, had an engineering business that he owned and took off while he was in seminary. And so he ended up spreading his seminary out over, over um, six years. Finally graduated moved back to Texas, went to College Station, took a young, small, tiny church that was dying and supported himself, took his business back there, was doing the engineering business and uh, civil engineering and getting all kinds of contracts and was bivocational. And uh, I was in contact with him through this whole time. I knew him from before he was in seminary, while he was in seminary, after he got out of seminary. And, and a lot of people never make that jump from bivocational. And this guy had a great company and a good job. And it says something that, you know, people who go into ministry, it shouldn't be just the last choice. Well, I can't do anything else in life. Maybe I'll be a pastor, you know. And so this guy really felt a desire to see a solid church in that area and was just, and, and so he just started preaching and preaching and the church started growing. And, then, and they, then another church was dying and they said, hey, you guys are doing something great. You want our property? We're dead. And so they took that, they moved to the other property, then they started growing, growing, and then they built uh, a new worship center. They, they, they have about 500 people now, and he's completely sold his business. He's out of it. He's completely supported by the church. And it's one of those great stories. It should be happening more and more and more. They actually have another church of, uh, that was outside of town that burned down. They're now meeting on their campus, and they're going to send a bunch of their congregants with that church after a certain period of time to go to that former building that they had and revitalize it, which is right in the center of town. So they really have a heart for revitalizing churches. This is important, but it takes people who realize we have a responsibility. We're being fed spiritually. We need to take care of those who are shepherding us. So I I think that there's a place for, for lay elders uh, Paul and I are both lay elders here at Grace Church. We're, we're, our job is at the seminary. We volunteer here. 
This is, this is a privilege for us. Um, we have the right to get a salary here if we wanted it. Um, I don't know what the seminary would say. They'd probably fire us. But no, I'm not, um, I, I don't think so. But, but, but this is a joy for us. Um, and for me personally, it's hard for me to minister at the seminary and be training guys without this aspect in my life because this helps me. I was, I, was, um, I was preparing for this, and I'm just thinking, Lord, help me to be kingdom-minded. Help me to be proactive in loving others as, as, I, as I need to be uh, and not thinking about myself because we're all selfish people. Um, so we have this, these illustrations. We've got the soldier, the vine dresser, the shepherd, the farm, and then we have others. Notice in verse 12, if others share the right, Apollos and Cephas over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we would cause, we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. There's a couple of things here, um, and, and one of them is the others here, I don't think he's just talking about all these other illustrations. I think he's talking about other people that the church in Corinth is supporting financially. I think he's talking about Cephas and Apollos and maybe others who have benefited financially. I think he's saying that because notice in verse 12, he says, if others share the right over you, there are others who are over you and they're receiving this right. They're receiving financial benefit from you. So he uses others as an illustration. Shouldn't we more, the ones who helped establish this church? Do we not have that same right? Again, it's more of an illustration of others. So we have the the soldier, the vine dresser, the shepherd, the farm, the others. And then we have temple workers. Verse 12, sorry, verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Not sure exactly whether he's talking about the Jewish altar or the old pagan altars that people were going to. In either case, those who worked there benefited from the sacrifices that were offered. We talked about last time we were together in chapter 8 that even in the pagan temples, uh, a third of the meat went, was burned up, a third of the meat was given to the priest, and a third of the meat was then brought home by the person who sacrificed it. And so there was this idea already in their culture. And so he uses the idea of temple workers. And finally, in verse 14, he says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And... Uh, I think the illustration here is actually of those who are sent out by Jesus. And I think that what's going on here is a reference. When he says, so also the Lord, I think he's talking about the Lord Jesus, who directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. In um, Matthew chapter 10, verse 10, just turn back with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, verse 10, says, Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table, wait a minute, uh, that's nine. Let's go to 10. Uh, He says, And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay in his house until you leave that city. Uh, In in Luke chapter, I don't need to turn there, but I'll just reference it. Luke chapter 10, verse 7 
um, he says, the worker is worthy of his wages. And so the principle is that Jesus sent out the 12 in Matthew chapter 10. Later in Luke chapter 10, he sent out the 72 to the lost sheep of Israel. And he told them, don't take any cloak with you. Don't take any extra garments with you. And he's basically saying, let those who hear the word take care of you. The worker is worthy of the wages. So he uses a final illustration of the Lord sending out the 12 and then the 72, those who have been sent out by the Lord. If they, weren't, if they are worthy of the wages, should not Paul and Barnabas. So you see what a long, extensive, drawn-out argument this is by the Apostle Paul. And it just seems too long um, just to, to make his point, seven different illustrations, one of them a very detailed one about a farm with four more illustrations in it. So 11 illustrations to back up his point that he's worthy of it, all to say, I have this right, but I'm not going to use it. And that's what we're going to get to next week. Next week, we'll get there. I want to close by reading uh, a list of, it's really for those who want to practice self-denial. It's written by a, a Puritan, 17th century Puritan named Richard Baxter. Uh, anytime you have a pastor or a church leader who's proud or arrogant, if you just give them a copy of anything Richard Baxter wrote, it will help them. It's brutal. Everything he writes just, just cuts to the heart. But this is a list of 13 issues that will help you with self-denial. And I'm just going to read it. Um, I believe it's from the Reformed Pastor written by Richard Baxter. It says, number one, watch your appetite as to meat and drink, both quantity and quality. Gluttony is common unobserved sin. The flesh no way enslaves men more than by the appetite. As we see drunkards and gluttons, that can no more forbear than one that thirsteth in a burning fever. So he talks about food uh, and drink. Number two, take heed in the lust of uncleanness and all degrees of it and approach to it, especially immodest, the immodest behavior. Um, verse three, take heed of coarse speech, filthy talk, and love songs. Uh-oh. Um, and of such incensing snares. Number four, take heed of too much sleep and idleness. Number five, take heed of too much delight in your riches, your lands, your buildings, and delectable conveniences. Number six, take heed lest honors or worldly greatness or men's applause become your too great pleasure. Number seven, and lest you grow to make it your delight to think on such things when you are alone or talk idly of them in company with others. So talking um, about, uh, about anything that's unbecoming. Uh, number eight, and take heed lest the success and prosperity of your affairs so too much please you as him. Be careful that you're not pleased with anything else more than you are with Christ. Verse nine, take not up any inordinate pleasure that is, any excessive pleasure in your children, relations, or nearest friends. Sometimes even good things can be treasured more than Christ. Number 10, take heed of a delight in vain, unprofitable, sinful company. Number 11, or in finest apparel, 
to set you out to the eyes of others. Number 12, take heed of a delight in romances, playbooks, feigned stories, useless news, which corrupt the mind and waste your time. Number 13, take heed of a delight in any recreations which are excessive, needless, devouring time, discomposing the mind in duty, especially our delight in God. They are miserable souls that can delight themselves in no more safe, profitable things than cards and dice and stage plays and immodest dancing. So he, he doesn't hold back. I think it's good to read lists like that because our hearts, even as we're growing spiritually, are drawn towards worldly things. And anything that's going to cause us to focus on ourself can cause division in the church. And so self-denial is key. And we'll see more of that, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. Question? Yeah. Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter. It's on the su- just, just, I think you can probably Google on the subject of self-denial. Richard Baxter. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for the um, privilege of being able to look at a heartfelt letter that is your word, that you use circumstances which were obviously painful for the Apostle Paul, and yet in his defense of who he is and what his rights were, it challenges us to see not only our responsibility in the church, but also how giving up certain rights for the benefit of others brings about peace. So help us to think about our world this week and not what we could gain, but what we could do to promote your kingdom and that we would be people who are focused on building up others. We pray to you, You're the one who gives endurance and encouragement. I pray that you would give us a spirit of unity among ourselves as we follow Christ Jesus so that with one heart and one mouth, we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray this. Amen.